and you could still hear the screaming in the background. It wasn't the tape, it was the door, because we'd taken all the mattresses away, you see. And that was the end of the door. to the Temple of Blair episode 19 I believe it is it's a weekly metal news roundup and exploration show mate um, let's just get some housekeeping out of the way first so the Great Cat mini doc series is up it's up on the YouTubes it's up on the, the audios it's better viewed on the YouTubes because it's more of a visual thing um, the reception of it so far seems to be pretty, pretty good um, as I say it's more of a proof of concept just to get over the technical humps of creating a docuseries in a more earnest fashion than that first one I did with Raw a couple of months ago. But it has occurred to me that I started doing these interviews to support this project about eight weeks ago, just over eight weeks ago, so it's fucking mad how quickly everything's come along. But anyway, there's that, check that out if you can. Um, I've got three or four other interviews pertaining to The Great Cat and uh, the history of Roadrunner Records just in the bag. Um, they've not been edited yet, but I think I'll probably do it over this week and start filtering them out throughout the new year um but yeah i think i'll probably be putting this out today and then just taking a quick break um and planning my next steps really now that i've got a rough idea of how long it takes to create these videos and things like that and with impending life changes uh things are likely to sort of slow down and be a little bit more sporadic so apologies for that um but it is what it is calm down so should we jump into some news then let's have a quick gander Ah, okay. A metal injection report. Independent music venues to receive $15 billion as part of COVID-19 relief bill. Uh, Congress has officially committed $15 billion to live venues, independent movie theaters, and cultural, in- cultural institutions across the United States as part of their most recent COVID-19 relief bill. So that's good. Um, especially when there was a study a few months ago indicating that 90% of all venues... Uh, weren't expected to last the following few months, so I guess those that have survived so far are now entitled to a little bit of that sweet, sweet cheddar, and hopefully that keeps it going. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I haven't really done a lot of thinking about this stuff, especially in the UK where we get absolutely fucking nothing. I think it's going to be a really interesting um, couple of months as things start to <laughs> things start the COVID starts to wind down. Um, but as things start to reopen and there's a semblance of normalcy returning to the live uh, music circuit, some things are going to have to change. I think the main dichotomy is going to be um, protecting people versus the bigger players in the industry, your live nations and things like that, trying to recoup their losses. Um, being quite as cynical as I am, I guess I'd... I'd be expecting things to be exactly as they were before, but more expensive. Um, that's the thing. That's that's your, that's the, probably the most likely outcome uh, as things sort of move forward. It's good to see though that there's um, hopefully some money going to those places that haven't been getting any kind of revenue for the last nearly a year now. Uh, hopefully that keeps them all open or it keeps people in work. More importantly, I'm not so fussed about venues being open. I don't mind. It's like. If you have five people working at a venue that's shut down, as long as those five people are working in a different venue, I don't really give a shit. As long as there's a place that, where the metal can happen, that's all I care about. Um, but yeah, just keep that, keep keep on trucking. Another big kind of businessy oriented item: Napalm Records expands its rock and metal empire with the acquisition of SPV. 
SPV is obviously one of the um, <laughs> as I'm kind of like it all fucking rolls back to this Roadrunner record stuff uh, SPV if you typically if you're getting signed in the 80s or 90s you're either going to Metal Blade Roadrunner um, <clears throat> if you're on sort of the more extreme fringes you'll go to Air Rake um, the SPV was usually sort of one of those main contenders uh, when I'm when I'm fa- when I'm farming around looking for bands to interview, that's usually where their discography kind of goes. They tend to sort of start a roadrunner, get fucked over by a roadrunner, then sort of settle in SPV or somewhere like that, or somewhere like Metal Blade. That tends to be the trajectory of those '80s bands. So to me, this was like a ooh, this is interesting. But it's kind of again, it's really interesting to reflect on the last ten years of say streaming and the entire music industry being flipped on its head in terms of where the revenue goes, and there's still opportunities. I'm going to call them like this expansion partnerships just well kind of emerging of intellectual property and formatting if you will so this should be quite interesting to see what happens going forward because it's definitely not like this isn't a a giant conglomerate buying out an independent and uh, compromising their future this is napalm records a big indie buying out another one (laughs) so you know (laughs) that's quite quite exciting stuff i'll take an extract from the uh the blubbermouth.net article Long-established company SPV, founded in 1984 by Manfred Schutz, along with its current subsidiary labels such as Steamhammer, featuring a roster including Sodom, Running Wild, Magnum, Axel, Rudy Pell and Rage, and Long Branch Records, featuring artists such as Agent Fresco, The Intersphere, The Hirsch Effect, Silver Tomb, A Pale Horse Named Death, is now part of Napalm Records, the Napalm Records family. The company's current location in Hanover, Germany, and the SPV team under managing director Frank Uhl will maintain its structure and, in regard to the new distribution partners and labels, be expanded in the future. Napalm Records CEO Marcus Riedler states, The continuation and expansion of SPV as a distributor and the strengthening of the in-house labels are our major priorities. We'll combine all forces and link them with the power and worldwide network of Napalm Records in order to positively shape the future together. The employees of SPV are music-savvy, extremely experienced experts who are needed, now more than ever, to survive in these turbulent times, times on the international market. Together with Managing Director Frank Ewell and his team, we will seize the opportunities that currently present themselves and face the ever-growing challenges that the modern music market brings with it. In the ever-changing music landscape, we will continue to deliver the stro- our strong digital setup alongside our partners, The Orchard, and continue to provide strong physical co- product distribution for both our retail partners and fans worldwide via our mail-order stores. I wonder how many times he consulted the, uh, the thesaurus to... Uh, find alternative ways of saying this ever-changing music landscape. Interesting. <clears throat> Similarly, SPV Managing Director Frank Ewell adds, with Napalm Records, we have found a synergistic, synergistically, fucking hell, synergistically perfect partner for our artists, bands, and labels. The international setup and the additional reach and power of Napalm's marketing capabilities mean an important upgrade for SPV in tackling future tasks. I look forward to working with Marcus Riedler and the affiliated teams to further strengthen and expand our position in the market. This all looks above board and I like it. And there's some lovely pictures of the two lads wearing each other's t-shirts, not unlike a football match. Well done, boys. Ozzy the Osborne is halfway done with his next album. Uh, featuring Robert Trujillo and Taylor Hawkins as guests. I don't think that means they're part of his full-on band. I think it was with Chad Smith from The Chili's on Drums and Duff McGagan, uh for the last time round. But he's halfway done, and this is good because I, there's not... I mean, there's a lot of hyperbole about what it sounds like. They're saying it sounds like the 80s stuff, and it's like, I've, you've fucking heard me banging on about 
how people set expectations in the press and things. I'm quite happy with this simply from a metabolic standpoint. If Ozzy Osbourne wants to sit in a studio and bang out an album a year, it makes that makes me a very happy man. That's how I want my rock stars to age and eventually die, just banging out EPs and albums to for us to consume. It's the right way to do it, I think. Okay, so Andrew Watt, who is the uh, producer and guitarist, I'm not mistaken, on uh, Ozzy's latest album, Ordinary Man, says the following. There's a bunch of people involved, Andrew told Guitar World. I can't say for sure until the end, but I started doing a bunch of basic tracks with Chad and Robert Trujillo, who used to, be, who used to play in Ozzy's band, and Taylor Hawkins also came in and played a bunch on the record as well, which adds a different flair. It kind of harkened back to Ozzy's 80s era in a great way. And I think it's so cool to, for a rock fan to be able to listen to half an album with Chad Smith on drums and you flip it over and you get to hear Taylor Hawkins. And you know, the last album was really special for everyone involved. And so there was no point in Ozzy or me doing this again unless we thought we could bring something new to the table. And I feel like we're achieving that. Nah, fuck off, Andrew. We just want Ozzy to be busy. That's all we want. Anyway, moving swiftly, Manapakan. Ex-Iron Maiden singer Blaze Bailey to release War Within Me album in April. Um, yeah, okay, so... The reason I sort of mentioned what to mention this one is just because I get this kind of feeling that Blaze Bailey is actually really fucking brilliant, but no one's really given him much of a chance. Um, I think he had an album, must have been a few years ago now, I think it was like The Man Who Would Not Die, and I remember being sort of hyped up and going, yeah, I'm going to give that a listen, and I never got around to it. So I think I, I think I need to just verbalise my commitment to making sure that I do check him out. I did see him back in like 2008, when he played in Huddersfield, Huddersfield Parish, when he had an actual band, and that was pretty fucking good. I was, I'm not a massive. I don't hate those two Maiden albums he played on either. I think that's kind of what got me into metal in the first place. It was some of. I think Future Real and Man on the Edge were featured on a game called Carmageddon Two, Carpocalypse Now or whatever the fuck it was. <clears throat> and I was just a kid, and I was like, ah, oh, this is fucking brilliant. Obviously, the Trooper and Aces High were on there as well. But those two tracks are on there, and I thought this was actually pretty good. So I've kind of got a weird sort of soft spot for Blaze Bailey. But yeah, let me let me let me dig into that for you, and I'll maybe report back in a couple of weeks. As I lay dying, frontman uh, Tim Lambesis suffered burns to twenty five percent of his body in a freak accident. Uh, <laughs> there's a picture of him just covered in bandages, grinning his fucking ass off. Uh, <laughs> The 14-year-old singer was apparently pouring gas onto a bonfire when the top slipped off and the liquid ended up getting all over his clothes, you fucking idiot. Earlier today, Lambesa shared a photo of him lying in a hospital bed, and he included the following message. Keep your head up no matter what. I'm doing the best I can to make a thumbs up on the way to my surgery in about 30 minutes. Blah, 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 blah. We get it. Uh, Lambesa's were famously convicted in 2014 for things that we've forgotten about. Um... Oh, well, less that we forgot about more for an absolutely insane story which we've kind of done to death. Not on this podcast, but, you know, in the zeitgeist in general. But yeah, well, I, I, wish, it, I wish him well and I hope he changes his socks because they look fucking filthy in that picture. Copy Kleine drops Sanaton Ma music video. And uh, I should really do a bingo card for Copy Kleine videos because guess what? There are a bunch of fucking fins dicking about in the forest. It's the same shit again. But there's now been three uh, videos out for this album that's coming out on February 5th, 2021. Um, I don't know what to make of new Corpor Clarny-ish. I like... I don't like the aesthetic with the top art. I think um, the singer's going a little bit... I can't remember the singer's name. Oh, I'm such a fucking knobhead. Oh, 
anyway the singer's started adopting this like he's got dreads and a top hat and it all looks a little bit too rob zombie for me um but the rest of the songs seem a little bit less um heavy and a little less energetic than the older stuff like your tales of wind um wilderness that that sort of era it's still good and still worth putting on but um and i'll definitely be looking up out for this album as it comes out in february but i won't be watching the videos because guess what you fucking see it you could change it i wonder if someone could like overdub a um a fin troll video with a Cobra Kleine song and vice versa you've effectively got the same fucking video it looks good though <laughs> fair enough uh, sepultura announces fall to sepultura announces fall 2021 european tour with sacred reich and crowbar um that's good starts in november 4th in copenhagen and ends on december 6th in uh, harlem uh and this is what that's what i thought was quite funny so there's an irish date on here but there's no uk dates so you know congratulations fucking pandemics and uh a rather divisive political situation relating to our borders uh it definitely fucking the fruits of our labor are now completely laid bare we can't get a sepultura tour you fucking idiots I'd love to go to, um, have they got any in uh, Holland? I can't see any in Holland, but I am just skipping it. But I could just go to Dublin, or I could just go to Antwerp, that's not too far. Well, I could if I could leave the fucking country. Fucking bastards. <laughs> right, last on my list today. Um, it's more of a, it's less of a news item. I thought this was just quite good. I thought I wanted to signal boost it a little bit. So metalsucks.net has an article um, penned by a guest writer known as Ryan Dyer, D-Y-E-R, called The Five Most Brutal Metal Bands in China. I guess, like, because I play video games and I watch films and things like that, you kind of, in, in the meta conversation about the business, you tend to hear about... Um, the Chinese market, the impact of the Chinese market, how people tend to cater for the Chinese market, and it's all very anti-democratic and very pro-censorship, and all these fucking bastards who are making loads of money off the Chinese market by, you know, succumbing to their whims, uh, and all that stuff. It got me thinking, like, I wonder what would happen if there was, like, metal in China, because I didn't know there was metal in China, but then I literally went to Metal Sucks that, that day and found this article. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it turns out, metal, you know, China, China has some metal isn't that good and these are the five most brutal metal bands in China uh, give the actual article a, a, a watch a watch a read on metalsucks.net but I'm going to skip through and just note um, the band names obviously these are all in Chinese characters and, and are translated for our benefit the first one's called The Dark Prison Massacre which is fucking brilliant The Chinese Godfather of Slam Tianjin's The Dark Prison Massacre have been at it since 2005 blah 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 if I remember rightly, this sounds like fucking guttural, like pig squeaks, pig pig squeaks, pig squeal, grindcore, that kind of stuff. Stuff. Next one is armed conflict. Now we're getting now we're getting good. Third one's called rectal wench. <laughs> rectal wench. Then it's followed by a uh, impure injection. I fucking love it. I fucking. I think it's like. It could be like a British dry sense of irony, and I like I like how metal bands tend to sort of parody them, parody themselves in um, in the way that they sort of either with joke names or silly song titles. You know, it could still be brutal and really awesome, but you can you can put fun of yourself. And I think I like in my head, I'm thinking, is that dry kind of sense of humour? Does that translate to the Orient? 
because if it does good to the Chinese I'd probably we've got more in common with um, our brothers out east than we um, probably give ourselves credit for <laughs> if this is actually kind of like the the platform which they're uh, conducting themselves from and last one's just called stabbing <laughs> ah it did make me chuckle that so there you go uh, five most brutal bands in China by Ryan Dyer on metalsucks.net I would normally just like redo like just read out the article but it's I'm just, you know send them the clicks man make it worth Ryan Dyer's while oh yeah no metal tat today I'm fucking sick of it there's more metal tat than there is metal news so you know what I, I don't want to spend any more time talking about what anthrax have got out this week the only thing I'm getting out of bed for with regards to metal tat is anal <laughs> fleshlights that's the only thing I'm fucking getting out of bed for. Metal Tat is dead. Thanks, Anthrax. Right, so in terms of uh, kind of a longer form thing I want to talk about today, um, I started looking into the Black Sabbath eras that aren't Dio or Ozzy. Like the weird fucking ones in the 80s when everyone started dropping out and coming back and dropping out. Because it's an oft not talked about Oh, it's a not oft. It's just never fucking talked about. You don't really hear about the Ian Gillen record. You don't really hear about the Glenn Hughes one or the Tony Martin ones and all that stuff. It's all a bit fucking up in the air. And we tend to focus more around Dio and Ozzy, which is totally reasonable because it's the best fucking stuff. But, um, no, I thought it'd be quite interesting to just see what they all sound like and maybe get a bit of historical context around them. So we start with um, Born Again. Born Again in 1983. Um, so where is everyone at this point? So uh, Dio's left Sabbath, along with Vinnie Apice on, on drums. Um, I think there was something to do with the mixing of the live album after the Mob Rules in 1982. Anyway, they fucked off, and um, Dio goes and has a, a wonderfully um, successful solo career and all that, all that stuff. So Sabbath sat there without a singer. <clears throat> They're managed by Don Arden at this point, who is course the father of Sharon Osborne who manages Ozzy at this point um, so they the, the, the stood there without a singer and they're thinking right what the fuck are we going to do um, Don Adam sort of pushes the idea of alright well you know, start looking around here are a few names they've got Robert Plant on the books they've got David Coverdale um, and they ended up even got a, a, an audition tape from it's a little, a little boy called Michael Bolton uh, but they passed on him but they knew Ian Gillum from um, his time at Deep Purple. They sort of came up on, in the same circles, what with being early, late 60s and early 70s metal groups. Um, so they approached Gillum. Gillum then, this is the famous story, Gillum then meets them in a pub called The Bear in Oxford in uh, February 1983. And um, the next day he wakes up and goes about his day, probably having a bacon sandwich and just fucking getting on his boat and going for a sail or something and then his manager calls Ian Gillen up and says alright then when are you starting and he's like what the fuck are you on about and he says you just signed up to be in Black Sabbath and I was like, oh fucking hell you can't remember so anyway that's how that happens um, the band actually had no intention of it being a Black Sabbath album they wanted it to be like um, uh, like a, a, a Giza Iomi Gillen and Ward album you know just like a, just like a super group sort of deal um, but once they'd fil- finished the album and took it to the record label Vertigo, they just went, no, here's the contract. It's going to be put out under Black Sabbath. Oh, yeah, Bill Ward's back in the band at this point as well. He's just sobered up, um, and he's come back in. So the album itself is recorded 
at The Manor, which is a purpose-built studio manor house built by Richard Branson. Uh, and then a lot of um, a lot of interesting things kick off. What I'm going to do is I'm going to start with a couple of extracts from Martin Popoff's books and reviews. Martin Popoff is an interesting one because um, he loves it. <laughs> he thinks it's he thinks it's a great album, whilst the rest of the world thinks it's pretty stark and shit. But I'll come in with my own thoughts because I did have a, a few listen throughs and um, I have a few thoughts on the album. But I, I won't I won't fucking curse you with my commentary until afterwards. So let's dive a little bit in. Okay. Uh, so I'm, I'm getting these these words from bravewords.com, which is uh, one of Martin Popoff's various various platforms. And if you don't know, Martin Popoff is, is like the, the heavy metal historian. He's written like umpteen books on uh, band-specific uh, biographies, um, general movements like New Ever British Heavy Metal and stuff like that. He's done a shit ton for literature and heavy metal. Uh, so these two, um, these two excerpts are from Martin Popoff's two Black Sabbath books. <clears throat> the first is from Black Sabbath FAQ uh, and is the review of the Born Again album pulled from the chapter in which the entire uh, catalogue is reviewed. So, yes, the covers, as a, <laughs> the covers are a disaster and only a mother or a global warming denier could love that production. Uh, but there is so much charm to Sabbath's shacking up with Ian Gillen and fans have been coming around to that fact for years, showing up at the door of Born Again and finding themselves invited in for a pint. The personality of the album wells up from Gillen's unique storytelling style, his English-as-a-second-language crossword-loving twist of phrase, and his grounded sense of humour. This idea that you really have to laugh at it all, um, laugh at all this in the long run, even at Purple, hence Trashed, is about smacking up cars at, at the manor on toxic fuel. Uh, this is before drinking and driving was a, a, a thing. The song checking the box on the form since Never Say Die, indicating a rollicking rocker which uh, must introduce the record. And now to Sabotage, where the fir first sides only got three songs plus a piddle in between, two named here versus one on Sabotage, personally, I never thought Disturbing the Priest was too hot a track. Despite the amusing tale of its lyric, the final, for all intents and purposes, is a mean satanic story, an ill fit for Ian. No laughing in heaven notwithstanding. Zero the Hero, however, ha is a massive sledge. Maybe the band's heaviest song by some measures. It's Riffer Tank rolling over it, rolling over all in its path. Ian puts his best histrionic, histrionic blues rap over the top of it, lending the song a maturity that no one could imagine turning to cheese with Tony Martin instead. Bill proves he's still in the ma still the master of the slow drip drum part, and a massive headbang is achieved that makes the recently elapsed Dio era sound like Toto by comparison. Side two of the album is Gillen's. <clears throat> Ian less shoved into a box, a song like Digital Bitch being a, Digital Bitch being a kick-ass regular rocker one could see on a Purple album, or more aptly, a Gillen album. The title track, strange one. But again, there's a sense of art and maturity here that was missing on Mob Rules and Heaven and Hell. A certain bravery to write well outside the lines, with Born Again being in the bluesy doom category, but adding to that little six-pack or so as well. Hotline is another beer-foisting digital bitch. Round two, if you like, with Ian eventually peeling naked and running around the parking lot with a lit roll of newspaper up his bum. Ask him one day. And then, is clo then closing this entirely, interestingly cohesive side is Keep It Warm, another doomy blues. This one is an outright song, more musical, melodic, and metallic. But it's still a slog, the third amusingly slothful song on the album. And, you know, just the right balance, unlike Dehumanizer or The Devil You Know. So yeah, add it up. 
and what you've got is a friendly Sabbath album. Ian's input, like that of Glenn Hughes next time, refreshing the stable, lightening the mood, most definitely keeping the punters take, talking long into the night about what we don't or don't want as part of the Sabbath baggage. Rating 8 out of 10. So that's an interesting take. I say it's a little bit optimistic, if you ask me, but um, yeah, we'll move, we'll move on to the second extract. The second excerpt comprises the opening paragraphs of the chapter concerning Born Again, found in Popoff's Black Sabbath, Doom Let Loose, an illustrated history. A third era was about to begin in the life of Black Sabbath, but it's all a bit of a mess. I mean, it's sort of the Gillen, Ian Gillen era, but given that it only lasts for one album, maybe it's really the comical musical chairs era, with two albums emerging with two vastly different lineups. Everything's fragmented and shattered at this point, but that doesn't mean great music didn't get made. If any album in the history of Black Sabbath is getting a new set of horns up from metalheads here deep into the 2000s, it's born again. Perhaps this is because most subgenres of the form right now are so crushingly heavy and dark, just like this mad, opaque record of demonic vibrations. The story told time and again of the unholy alliance between Sabbath and Ian Gillen is one of a chance meeting in the pub between Tony and Ian. Both drank long and hard and got smashed and Ian was reminded the next day that over the course of the evening he had agreed to join Black Sabbath. In actuality, a meeting had been set up with the subject in mind in order for the guys to suss each other out, as it were, over a few pints. Gillen had initially turned the Sabbath's office over, office's overtures down, but then his own manager, manager suggested meeting Geezer and Tony. They picked a good pub and apparently set up a camp there for 12 hours. Gillen's ex-bandmate, most vocally bassist John McCoy, were none too pleased with the duplicity and haste with which Ian closed up shop on the Gillen band. On Gillen's part, he blamed a three-month break precipitated by vocal nodes, indicating that the band impatiently drifted apart and away into other projects while he was sidelined. Those stories are a little out of line, Ian says, <clears throat> of the press reports. Gillen calls the British press his biggest enemies. They're saying that I faked having vocal problems so I could just take a break my own band up and join Sabbath. That's not true. I was having serious vocal problems. And doctors told me that I should take a number of months away from singing. I didn't expect my band to sit around waiting for me, so I gave them permission to look for other gigs. When the Sabbath opportunity came, I didn't feel any particular concern for the band. Most of them were already involved with other groups. I was looking out for myself. How could I turn down the chance to play with Sabbath? I've known Tony and Giza for years, and I felt I could make an important contribution to their music. We all seem to be of the same wavelength. Sabbath is an all-British band again. That's surely not a put-down of America or Ronnie or Vinnie, but there's certain, a certain sensibility that we share having the same roots. That is irreplaceable. We've all been through the same experiences. We've tasted success and we know we want to taste it again. In any event, once the new alliance was formed, Deep Sabbath set out for the manor, the legendary Richard Branson studio ensconced in a country setting. Impressed at the time, the pre-release was conducted at the manor by Kerrang, and Tony was characteristically upbeat about the band's prospects. We didn't really rehearse that much, which was good because it keeps the song fresh. It wasn't worked out at all, and it feels a lot better, much more raw. It's got the rawness of the early Sabbath, and we've produced ourselves because we're all experienced enough to go in and say what we want. It's working great. We fancied getting back to basics again, do it in England, and not going for the extreme in studios where we where we always have done. That costs an absolute fortune. We wanted to record either here or at Rockfield, a place where we could all be around, live in. We've been able to use the same stuff we've had for a few years, really. We could have used it before, but it just wasn't suitable vocals-wise. Now Ian's come along and can sing on it, so it's great. There's a hell of a lot more energy now. It's more exciting, and I'm sure that will reflect on stage. 
Ian has given all of us a tremendous boost. We're like little kids again, going, great, I like this, I like that. It makes a huge difference when you can work that way as opposed to, oh, I'm fed up with it. Tony also indicated that he thought for a minute about hanging up the Sabbath name for the project, but then changed his mind. He was also chuffed that the band was all English again, and all in close proximity to each other. Rehearsals took place in Birmingham. Even though Geezer maintained a residence in St. Louis, he had a home in England as well. I think it makes a tremendous difference. No disrespect to American people because they're fine musicians, but I don't think it's the right combination for us. American musicians don't seem to have the roots that we do in Britain. Ian, on the other hand, has been around the same as we have. Purple and ourselves were going at it around the same time. We did it the hard way. A lot of bands that come up now, without sounding like an old man, have it easy. But I still believe that to work hard is the main thing, to lay the foundation. It's like building a house. If you start at the top, it won't work. This time we've done everything like the early days. We've gone back to a cheap rehearsal room, the lot, because when you've got a good lifestyle, you can lose the anger that you had in the first place. We noticed it and said, straight back, that's it. Ronnie didn't leave. We got rid of it. Rid of him, actually. But after that, we didn't quite know what to do, continues Tony. Whether we should go do solo projects or what, because there was only Geezer and myself at that stage. All we wanted was to have a bit of time off because we were in Los Angeles for so long that got bogged down. We thought of different vocalists, including a friend whose name I won't mention, and then Ian came about. I don't know how he came together, but it was arranged for us to meet in Woodstock. We hadn't seen Ian for a time, but we met at a pub there, The Bear. We just sat down and talked over different things, how we felt about the band and each other. It was really exciting. He joined officially at the end of February. He's totally committed to Sabbath. He loves being part of the band because he hasn't been involved in this sort of setup since Purple. He's in as a partner, and he's the happiest he's ever been. It's lovely that there are no arguments about what things to do. It's good. It's something that none of us really expected. You know, all of us have been in this business a long time, and we tend to think in terms of our own egos. But not so with Ian. He's a very nice man. But as far as the writing aspect and direction, it wasn't quite right at first, because he's been at it on his own for 11 albums as a superb player with his own Gillen band. So he was a lot more commercial than us. Doing this album, which was done fairly quickly, we didn't quite know what direction. And Ian didn't quite know what direction. We were in fully. But it's worked. Live, he does enjoy the older songs. He doesn't particularly like doing the Dio tunes, because with his range he can sing more like Ozzy than he can like Ronnie. Ronnie was actually quite young and hadn't experienced too many things, said Tony. In one particularly amusing jab at Ronnie, Ronnie is, of course, older than Tony by about 10 years. Vinny, too, was quite new to this. That's when you get the problems. We found out that Ronnie was doing his own solo album, and we felt he was paying more attention to that. Ronnie and Vinny left in the middle of the live album, so we completed and mixed the album on our own. Include the first statement, and there are no less than four inaccuracies there, says Popoff. He's alright, he's a bit off the wall, notes Geezer on Gillen. He was fine as a person to get on with and stuff, his lifestyle's a bit strange. He insisted on living in a tent when we were doing the album. It's just him, I don't know, living in a tent. And he has his own boat there so he could go sailing every day. And he definitely likes his booze. He was just being Ian, last Geezer, when asked why Ian was living in a tent. And we blew his tent up and sunk his boat. I think that was about enough. He crashed Bill's car so he got revenge by sinking his boat. In fact, the story goes that one night Ian decided not to stay in the tent. Actually, there are apparently two tents, one for Ian and one for his golf clubs. Gardner's golf clubs at night has been cited as one of the reasons he stayed in the tent. So this one night, the guys told Ian that a fox was tearing apart his tent. So Ian goes out, trips some wires, and the tent explodes. As well, the guys have rigged up an exploding soccer ball for Ian. And also arranged some wires to trip off explosives as he drove up the drive to the manor. 
So that was an extract from some of Martin Popoff's uh, um, writings. So the guy himself is kind of a bit of an enigma just because he fucking seems he seems to really like that album. So check out Martin Popoff, P-O-P-O-F-F.com uh, for more on the above type, well, from the stuff I've just been talking about. But he's also got some other books on Deep Purple, Dio and Rainbow. Well, like, fucking everyone, just check out who Martin Popoff is. He's a good egg. He's a damn good egg. Uh, so some of the, the songs on the album... Um, have in fact it's kind of cool because they seem to reflect on the recording of the album the, the time and the manner anytime with Ian Gillan they seem to remember it quite fondly because it seemed to be quite easy it was quite easy going um, there's some of the songs which are born of experiences in recording uh, for example as Martin goes on about a little bit there one time Gillan comes home from the pub and he smashes Bill Ward's car on like a little go-kart track which um, Richard Branson had built around the manor and that's what uh, inspired the opening track, track Trashed, about that particular experience, turning over his car. Uh, Disturbing the Priest uh, was written after a rehearsal space, um, and it received some noise complaints from the local clergy. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's all good stuff. So the cover of the album is a, is a really sort of bright image of a baby. The baby's got evil eyes and fangs. It's a red baby. It's got yellow nails, kind of like claws. The Black Sabbath logos and that sort of weird sort of calligraphic style. There's only like three colours. Yeah, there's only three colours, red, yellow and, and blue. It's pretty garish. It's pretty funny, if I'm being honest. Um, but Tony Ioni liked it, so he approved it. But everyone else fucking hated it. Bill Ward hated it. Ian Gillen reportedly told press that um, he vomited when he first saw it. Uh, there, is a, there is apparently a story behind this, actually. Uh, so according to the legend, the uh, the infamous cover... This is actually from metalarchives.com. But I did see an interview with the artist who um, talked about this, so I, can, I guess I can I can verify that it is true. According to legend, the infamous cover art for this album was done by an artist who was working for both Black Sabbath and Ozzy Osbourne. And the story goes that he made, <laughs> he made an intentionally poor job of it in the hope that Sabbath would reject it so that he could sever ties with them. As it turned out, Tony Iommi loved it. So that's pretty fucking good. <clears throat> So moving on, we've got the the album. The album. I'll tell you again what it's. If I fuck it, I'll tell you what it sounds like now. It sounds like a band's first album. It doesn't sound like Black Sabbath's first album. It sounds like a band, any given band's first album. It doesn't seem to. It doesn't not flow. It seems to work quite well with Ian Gillen. Um, there's even some moments on the album. Trashed. Not. Uh, I think Trashed is a, maybe a good example where they're sort of leaning into a. Uh, kind of throwing Gill in a bone a little bit and trying to emulate kind of like a burnish kind of sound um, but for the most part it's a good fit It's there's no reason why it wouldn't be I, but I just don't think the songs stand up very well on their own it, like I say it just sounds like a band uh, sorry an album by a band but interestingly enough I wouldn't mind seeing like if there was an like an error to be spoken of like imagine if they did three albums I would love to know what that would have ended up sounding like but uh, <laughs> yeah so, as the uh, body, this this is where things start to become a little more agitated in, in the life cycle of Black Sabbath, especially of this era. So, uh, Bill Ward recalls, there'd been conversations during the Born Again sessions about going on tour, and I was barely making it through the sessions, let alone touring. The thought of touring put me in such a state of panic and anxiety that I couldn't possibly face the idea. I was too ashamed to tell everybody. But rather than tell anybody, everybody, I drank and I disappeared. I escaped. That's how I used to do things. When I couldn't handle a situation, I'd just drink and run away. I came back to the United States, got hospitalized a few times, ended up back on the streets, and in the early part of January 1984, I went to my final detox, and from that point, I haven't taken a drink. I haven't even used any narcotics. So, 
the the tour itself uh, is pretty funny. Uh, there's some uh, there's an oversized Stonehenge stage set to support the song Stonehenge, um, and some for some reason it wouldn't even fit in some of the uh, the arenas that they'd play, and as a result it, it ended up ca- uh, forcing the cancellations of a number of shows, which is fucking brilliant. Anyway, I'm going to pull an, uh, some audio from an interview with Ian Gillen. Um, it's, on our YouTube, it says it's uploaded in 2006. Um, the user of the uploader is Seppo Huala Giuseppo. S-E-P-P-O-G-A-U-L-L-A-J-S-E-P-P-O. <laughs> That's pretty good. So I'll, I'll, here's the audio for that. And it, it goes into a little bit more detail about the Stonehenge prop and some of the other more farcical things which happened on the Born Again tour. We had uh, a company called LSD do a stage set. We were going to do a big American tour. We were opening at the Maple Leaf Gardens in Canada. And uh, somebody said, anyone got an idea of what we should do as a stage set? Geezer said, Stonehenge. And the guy said, well, how do you envisage this? And he said, life-size. So they produced a life-size Stonehenge in uh, carbon fibre and whatever. And three uh, container loads went out with the rest of the equipment to Canada. And we, we could get about a quarter of it on stage, and we're sort of edging between these huge monoliths and whatever. Don Arden was the manager at the time. Don Arden, who I have a very soft spot for. And... Uh, so we get there, and it's it's unbelievable. There's all this um, Stonehenge stuff. So we get to the point where normally, and if anyone's seen Spinal Tap, you'll recognise this, normally three or four roadies used to come on in monk's cows, and the bells would chime, you know, the dong, dong. And then we go into something like War Pigs or Iron Man or whatever the opening thing was. And the... On the, on the, the last... We noticed a dwarf walking around on the day before the opening show. And what's this dwarf? Oh, never mind, never mind. So on the, produ- the final production rehearsal in the afternoon, just doing the, the bits and pieces, this, well, this tape came on of a, a baby screaming. Now, this, this is the, the album we did was called Born Again. And the cover was um, a, a, a horrible cover. It was a, a, a newborn baby, painted red, with long yellow claws coming out of its fingernails and two little horns coming out of its head. And... Um, so there's this dwarf comes out and he's walking across the top of uh, this Stonehenge and there's this tape screaming and the dwarf's miming of the screaming and he f- uh, the, the, the tape sort of fades away and the dwarf falls back from about 35 feet in the air and falls onto this big pile of mattresses, right? And then, dong, the bells start and the monks come out and then, bong, and the whole thing. It's, it's pure spanter. So... Uh, uh, Bev was playing. Bev Bevan was playing drums at the time. It was a peculiar year for Sabbath, and uh, we made the best of it. And we're saying to Don, "We think this is in the worst possible taste." This dwarf, you know. And Don's going, "No, the kids will love it. The kids will love it. You know, it'll be great." Mm, okay. So we're watching from the wings. And this dwarf comes out in a red costume with the yellow fingernails. Wow, screaming! I'm looking at the kids. They're going, <laughs> "Really?" I mean, just everyone was bursting into laughter. You know, it was absolutely horrendous. So anyway, the dwarf came out and fell off and the scream sort of tailed away and the monks came out with their cows, dong, the bells. And you could still hear the screaming in the background. It wasn't the tape, it was the dwarf, because we'd taken all the mattresses away, you see. And that was the end of the dwarf. So then came the real problem because I couldn't get into my brain any of these lyrics. I couldn't understand them. And uh, 
So the day before we went away, I said to my wife, I said, I, I cannot soak in these words. They, there's no storyline, there's no... I can't relate to what they mean. And so I, I made a cue book. I never use monitors on stage. I've never used monitors. So I made this cue book, and I, it was one of those display books with plastic pages, and I'd written all the cue lines out, and I practised in my kitchen before I went away, turning the pages over with my foot. And uh, so I thought, well, that's going to be OK. And I had them put two wedges on the front of the stage. They weren't plugged in, but two monitor wedges to conceal the book. So after the dwarf had fallen without the mattresses and the monks came on and bang, and then all the dry ice started, bang, we're away. And I walk out, bearing in mind that Ronnie Deere was the previous singer. And it's great. The audience is fantastic, going zerk and whatever. And I walk out, and they've got the biggest amount of dry ice I've ever seen. They must have had six buckets up there. And the dry ice is pumping out, and there's floor spots and everything else. And I suddenly... I'm going around giving it all that, you know, shaking the mic stand around and... Yeah. And, uh... I suddenly went, oh, shit. The dry ice was sort of waist-high. And it's swirling towards the front of the stage. And there's my book. And to, I couldn't remember the first line of the first song. I... <laughs> and so I had to fall to my knees, you know, in a sort of... in a dramatic pose, you know, and I'm going... <laughs> trying to blow the dry ice away. And I'm trying to see what the first line was. And by this time, I'm panicking so much, I don't know what the hell's going on. So I'm going, ah, da, da, da. And all you could see was my head popping up above the dry ice and then down again to see the, <laughs> the words again and up again. And I, I heard somebody in the front shout out, It's Ronnie Dio! <laughs> in 2005, uh, Giza would try and maintain that it wasn't actually his idea. <laughs> he said, it had nothing to do with me. In fact, I was the one who thought it was really corny. We had Sharon Osborne's dad... Don Arden managing us. He came up with the idea of having the stage set be Stonehenge. He wrote the dimensions down and gave it to our tour manager. He wrote it down in metres, but he meant to write it down in feet. The people who made it saw 15 metres instead of 15 feet. It was 45 feet high and wouldn't fit on any stage anywhere, so we just had to leave it in the storage area. It cost a fortune to make, but there was not a building on earth that you could fit it into. <laughs> oh, that's great. We couldn't believe the size of it when we saw it, recalled Ayami. When we, we'd seen it when we rehearsed in the NEC uh, for a whole, and we'd only seen it, part, seen it on the floor, parts of it. They hadn't finished it. So it gets to uh, the 1983 Reading Festival, and we've got these huge ones at the back that are just, like, gigantic. God, that's amazing. That is amazing. Anyway, Wikipedia seems to report that of the 96-odd um, shows that were scheduled for the Born Again Tour, only, well, about 30% of them were cancelled due to one thing or another. Uh, and Bill Ward promptly fucks off because he couldn't handle the strain of touring, which is fine. Um, and he wouldn't rejoin for quite a while, perhaps not even until '95 when um, Ozzy comes back. <laughs> and after the end of this particular tour, Geezer leaves the band, um, as does uh, Ian Gillen, as you might imagine. And that would take us gently into the next sort of saga of the Black Sabbath 80s non Dio, non Ozzy era. Uh, for the album Seventh Star, which I'll look into, I reckon. If not next week, then the week after. When does next... Yeah, next week is um, New Year's Eve, so I probably won't do one then. But, uh, yeah, it's quite good. What I would definitely recommend is that you check out the uh, sort of mini-documentaries that were thrown together online, especially on YouTube, which uh, details some more of the um, 
some more of the stories about the creation of the album and things like that. I mean, it's not a bad album. It's worth putting on, and I'm glad. You know, as I'm glad that they look back on it quite fondly and they don't really mind it. Um, it seemed to be quite a good time for them in terms of like just getting together as mates and doing something. Uh, I quite like that, but it, it does stand up. There's, I guess there's some moments on it which are quite nice, but it's, it's really a nothing album where nothing really happens. It's not bad by any stretch of the imagination. It's just a little bit nothing. But yeah, and I'm a bit of a sucker for hearing different singers sing War Pigs live, and there's some footage of Ian Gillen doing that as well, which is always very nice. But yeah, and that's it. That's it for Born Again. Uh, like I said, do check out everything online because it is, a, it is a fascinating part of that band's career. <laughs> Alright then guys, well thanks very much for listening. Um, I'm available on uh, the tweets at Robert Jett and at Temple of Blep Pod, as well as on email. We've got a website now. Oh yeah, that's another, that's another point apart from uh, apart from the other housekeeping. There's also some written interviews that I'm gonna I'm gonna throw up there as well. This last week was that put up I put up the interviews with Satan and with the Great Cat to support that mini documentary. Um, and there'll be more that go up over the next week or so. But yeah, I'm probably going to take a bit of a step back and I'll probably maybe take next week off. So it's ta for now, or uh, good bleh for now. Well, thanks very much for listening. I'll speak to you soon. Merry Christmas and all that good shit. ta